And ultimately, we want to find that simultaneity of the hard and the soft, the yin and the yang, the situational awareness and the focus in everything. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Most people think mental toughness when they imagine a Navy SEAL. What they don't expect is a thoughtful, yoga-innovating, joking and laughing professor have this man on the show. I have always been a fan of Mark's unbeatable mind. He is a Navy SEAL. He is a Ivy League graduate. He's an accountant. He's a karate expert. The man trains Navy SEALs. I mean, there's nothing that this man doesn't do and can't do. And he is super, super humble. And we dive into Mark's story, his philosophy, how he came to be the man he is today. Now, at age 26, Mark graduated as Honor Man, number one ranked trainee of SEALs Buds, class number 170. Mark served for nine years total on active duty and 11 as a reserve SEAL, retiring as commander in 2011. His leadership of teams was so effective, the government tasked him with creating a nationwide mentoring program for SEALs trainees. Not only did it increase the quality of SEALs candidates, but it reduced the attrition rate up to 5%. Now, Mark went on to create a fitness company and much, much more. And this is the second time I've actually had Mark on the show. The first time we had a full recording, a full interview. Unfortunately, we had some sound issues. Um, and yeah, I was lucky enough to get the man back on the show today. But look, I hope you enjoy this episode. Mark is a true gentleman, a real ultra performer, and there's a lot to learn. And I am sure that you will love the conversation. Now, if you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co. Check out the website. You'll find all kinds of cool stuff. Please rate this podcast. It is through your reviews that we continue to scale the message of ultra performance. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Mark. Have a great one. Peace. Mark, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. We are kicking off our second go at this. You and I had a chat last May, but there were some technical difficulties. But you know what? I, I don't mind talking to people twice because generally the second time is even better. <laughs> I agree. I've done it. Usually it's my own problem is the technical issue. You know, I've, I've recorded a podcast that I forgot to press record. So <laughs> technically, I didn't even record it. So <laughs> those are always fun to do over. But we are here. And I have to say, I love your work. Um, I love the integrated warrior approach, um, mind, body, spirit. And I think we're in a culture where the grind message and the go hard and that polarized view of uh, we need to push ourselves and get off the couch. I think I, I agree with that, but I think there's a whole another side of that that we don't necessarily talk about enough. And that's why I love what you do and how you do what you do, because you really recognize the holistic approach to to, to this performance piece, right? So I'm going to take it back, though. I just, I just want to talk about how you came up, Mark. So I know that 
you grew up in upstate New York. I know that your dad had a love of the outdoors. I believe he was a bit of a hard ass and your mom was an athlete. How did that impact you? And, you know, what did you take from your childhood to adulthood in terms of how you grew up, the good and the bad? Basically, growing up is shaping your identity. And identity is, you know, it comes from experiences. Experiences are essentially the input and, and the meaning you make, you know, the, the frames of reference and the memories that you store and how you choose to store those memories and, and what memories you choose to make part of your ongoing story and what you choose to ignore or suppress or repress or project, right? So, you know, I like to say now that essentially you're being trained from birth and, and you just don't realize it until you wake up and recognize it. Oh shit. You know, someone else is training me. Culture's training me. My parents have trained me. My mind is shaped this way. My personality, my ego, everything is shaped in this, in this very complex web of, of stories. And we call that your identity. And, um, until you wake up to that and recognize that that identity is, is often not your highest and best self identity or your spiritual self's identity, which maybe has a different path or calling for you and a different way of being, you kind of get trapped and locked. And, and that was living that very path. You know what I mean? I was a pretty common person, small town, 375 people in my town in upstate New York and bumper community to Utica, New York, which was a declining industrial city. My father had a, an industrial plant there. I mean, that was a business that had been over a hundred years old in the family for multiple generations. And, and of course, those multiple generations were filled with, you know, a lot of alcohol and a lot of, you know, negativity and stuff like that. But the business was still surviving and, you know, it was making employed three or 400 people. And certainly the expectation was, or the identity of the family was that we're, we're divines and we're a business family. And, you know, we do that. Um, because of that, we also, we didn't struggle financially, even though there was certainly not an abundance mentality in my family, my mom or my dad. It's really interesting. We, we had resources, but it wasn't anything my father earned. You know, he was kind of handed it, the business. Now, he maintained it. He did his work. You know, he, he, he battled the unions. He battled the lawsuits. You know, he, he maintained the business. Uh, but I think he always never really felt confident or, you know, and, and he had a childhood that was, you know, abusive and traumatic. And so he felt a lot of kind of shame and, you know, he expressed that in anger and rage and drinking and whatnot. And so I lived with that. So because of that, and my, and my mom was, you know, very, very athletic and, you know, my dad was like the really good looking guy and she didn't know quite what she was getting into. And, but she wasn't going to walk away from that once she got into that. And so she became kind of an, a codependent enabler and you know, tried to hold the family together. One of the things that I loved about my mom's contribution is she really got us into sports. And I think that was largely to get us out of the house in the afternoon and to get us that discipline and athleticism. So it was really my mom who was in the sports, not my dad. But my dad um, did love the outdoors. And we used to, you know, we'd be outdoors a lot and, you know, always kind of like chopping wood or mowing the lawn. And then in the summers, um, part of the, the gift of this family legacy was uh, he inherited a, a summer uh, kind of family camp on Lake Placid in the West Shore, you know, no road access. So we, we would get off school and like the next day pile in a car and head up to this beautiful Adirondack Lake and the Adirondack Parks in upstate New York for 
your listeners, is 6 million acres of protected wilderness with over 5,000 freshwater lakes. And Lake Placid is like the, the winter sports capital of America. You know, that and maybe Aspen, Colorado, or, or um, you know, uh, Park City, Utah could compare. But um, the Olympics were held there twice. I was actually at the 1980 Olympics. Um, and so my front yard was a lake, and my backyard was this beautiful mountain range. Wow. It was awesome. No, no road access, no cars, right? And so we had boats and it became a, a really uh, good competitive water skier. My swimming, you know, was very good because I was always on the water, in, on, under. And I used to love running the mountains of the Adirondacks. And, you know, that, I, and that led to me being a really effective endurance athlete because I was comfortable being alone, you know, in the water. I was comfortable being alone running trails. And so in a sense, the wilderness and that environment was my first training ground. Well, the first training ground was the family, which was conditioning me a certain way. And, and there was positive and negatives to that, right? The negatives was I got really shut down emotionally. The positive was I was tough as nails because, you know, you, you really weren't going to hurt me. And when I went to SEAL training, like, it couldn't hurt me because I was like, you got nothing on that beast of a man who was my father, right? So... And then from nature and being out in nature and running those trails and hiking the mountains and swimming the lakes, I learned to be really comfortable with my mind. And so I developed a, um, you know, kind of a, an introspective practice early in life without even knowing what I was doing, right? No, no training or anything. At any rate, so I was smart enough and good enough athletics to get into a pretty good college Colgate University. And that was one thing also I really love about my parents is kind of expected that I was going to go to college and they paid for most of it, you know, like 95% of my undergraduate. So that was a huge blessing because not, not everybody gets that, right? And everyone gets as expected to go. And so they don't, unless they buck up and decide to do it on themselves. And, and I don't, I didn't have student loan debt from college. I did have it from my later on from my master's, my MBA, because I paid for that. So I went to Colgate. I swam competitively there. I ended up rowing crew competitively in the last two years and was in a fraternity. Great guy, you know, great bunch of guys. And, um, you know, I kind of did that thing. And, and that led me to getting a decent job that, that took me down to Manhattan after I graduated with a company called Coopers and Library, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, big company. And they were sending me uh, with a group of people from, you know, hired by other accounting firms and consulting firms that sent us to NYU Stern School of Business to get our master's in accounting. And then we would then be qualified to sit for the CPA exam. So there I was, you know, kind of way over my head, I thought, because I was a pretty average student. It's not because I wasn't smart. It's because I was really, uh, I really lacked confidence um, because of the way I was raised, you know, in college. And so I, here I was, you know, I was good enough to get into this, this great job in this great business school. But I was like, whoa. I didn't feel confident or competent, but I, here I was, I was doing it, you know? And um, so I'm, I go down there and I start working at Cooper's as an auditor. And then I, you know, I'm going to school at night and, um, and I wanted to keep up my physical. There was something about my kind of spirit. This is like, okay, you're not going to let your body go into like this steady decline. Like I see in with the rest of the suits, you know, on wall street where the, looking all pasty and kind of puffy. And, and I was like, there's no way in H that I'm going to 
allow that to happen. So I would get up every morning and go for a six mile run and do my little morning ritual, which included some journaling at that time and some introspective work. And then this is 1985, by the way. So well before a lot of this stuff was talked about. Lunchtime, I would go to New York Athletic Club and bang out a high-intensity interval workout before I even knew what that meant. But I now see that's what I was doing because I had to get it done fast, right? And I and I liked a lot of variety, and I just hated those machines. And so I just, you know, whatever I could do to break a sweat and move my body, you know, I would do it for as fast as I could for 20 minutes or so. And then in the evening, I had this time period where I they would let me off at seven o'clock or five o'clock. I had to be down at the World Trade Center at seven thirty, where NYU Business School was, and so. Most of my peers would go home and uh, have dinner and change and, you know, prep for school by doing some homework or something or reading. And I said, I look at that as a freaking training block. You know, look at that. I got two hours to do something. But what am I going to do? You know, I've already gone to the gym and I, I've already gone to run. So, I, you know, I don't really have time to go rowing or do anything fancy triathlon wise. So I was like trying to figure out what I would do. And I stumbled across a martial arts studio on the way home from school. And that's where I met. My first true mentor, Mr. Nakamura, Kaito Nakamura, who taught me how to meditate because he was a Zen master as well as his karate instructor, founder of the school, founder of the whole style. So I took to meditating back when no one talked about meditating, but this was a Japanese martial tradition. So Zen and you know the martial way was very, uh, you know, that's a long tradition, right? So here I was in New York City, you know practicing this martial art and sitting on a little wooden bench every day meditating. And um, I trusted Nakamura so much and I was so, it felt familiar to me because of my experiences in the wilderness, right? Because when I would go on those long runs and those long swims and stuff, I, I would feel similar to what I, the way I felt after a long sit. And so I was like, oh, this is great. I felt really good. And then, then the contrast between that and the cacophony of walking out into the streets of Manhattan was like very, very real to me. And so I was like, oh, that's good. That's good. Like that feels good. There's something about that that is beneficial to me. So I stuck with it, RJ. And um, boy, I, I within two years, I could, I could see this real radical transformation occurring in my mind. I was able to... Um, First, my, I was able to concentrate much more deeply. And, and Zen, like the path of Zen is really starts with concentration training. And then, and then it leads to um, more of a metacognitive capacity to think about your thinking, to be able to, to separate yourself from your thoughts and emotions. And when that started to happen, which took about 18, nine months, you know, between nine and 18 months of work, meditation work, I began to be able to see the story of my life almost as if I was watching a movie. And so instead of like being in the screen, on the screen, living that, like merge with my thoughts and emotions, it's almost like I was sitting in the audience and looking at my life. And, and I was able to kind of like poke holes in the story. I was able to look at that story in that movie of my life and be like, wait a minute, you know, I don't like that. What happened? I don't, you know, I don't think that that was a good decision. And, um, why am I living this? Whose story is this anyway? It's like, why am I even, you know, it's like, who's, <laughs> this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful life. What am I doing here? So I was like, shit, I better ask him better questions. I've been asking the wrong questions. Because yeah, if this isn't my life, then what is? What am I supposed to be doing? Why am I on this planet? So I started to ask those questions uh, during my meditations and after or before, and I would started to get some answers, RJ. 
started to come to me. This teacher of yours, did he become, I guess, like a father figure, right? Like, did he give you elements of nurturing that you may not have had growing up? My father was stern and mean. And so it shut me down. And this guy was stern, but really loving. I slowly over time, it took years for me to really trust that he had, that he really cared about me. And it wasn't going to like, he wasn't judging me because I, I think I internalized that sense of feeling judged. And, um, and so I just kind of projected that on him initially, even though he wasn't. And so that was very powerful for me to see someone who's really strong and completely accepting and open and non-judgmental and actually very light and happy and playful and spontaneous. All the, these qualities that I was like, wow, you can be both strong, stern, incredibly disciplined and happy and playful and light and spontaneous and joyful. And I was like, well, that's really cool. I want that. Right. So I, I, that gave me a lot of motivation to keep training both in the hard and the soft, both with the, you know, on the, on the dojo floor, as well as on the wooden bench. Right. You touched on something earlier about your father. I want to unpack it. Um, not so much about your dad, but just the principle. You said you grew up in a household of material abundance, but almost a scarcity mindset, right? So like, I guess that can happen in families that have generational wealth because you don't necessarily have to evolve as an individual to accumulate that wealth. Like an entrepreneur that's kind of self-made may have a tendency to focus on personal development because they are the ones that have adopted the stress to create that wealth. Now that's an assumption, that's not necessarily always true. But you're talking about a household with generational wealth, yet an, a mindset that doesn't kind of represent that level of abundance. That must have been tough, right? Because on the outside, it looks like everything is great and you should be happy, but you're not, right? And so can you just focus on that? What was that like? Yeah, that's a great question, RJ, because you're spot on. I mean... There is so much growth that accrues to to someone who goes out there on their own and, and makes it on their own. This is why I was like, I was dead set. I am not going back to that family business. And I'm going to go figure this out on my own. You know what I mean? And that led me, of course, part of that and combined with me having these experiences on the meditation bench that told me I was going to be a warrior or needed to be a warrior led me into the SEALs. But then also after, the, after I got off active duty, I didn't go back to the family business and I didn't go back to to, you know, Cooper's and Leibman or PricewaterhouseCoopers. I said, I, I want to be an entrepreneur, you know? So I took the entrepreneurial path, and started my first business, largely because I, I had learned the value of the growth that accrues from overcoming challenges and, and really going out and planting your flag in the world and following your calling and your purpose, right? That's really critically important. And I think that, um, because of the way our systems are structured with, you know, corporations that, that endure, you know, beyond the, beyond the life of their founders, um, you know, leads to this generational wealth. And that can be really trap people because the, the allure to stay is very high. You know, all my siblings, there's three of them are back working at the family business and they're not particularly happy, but it's, as you know, it's hard. And as everyone listening, know, it's hard to start a business. Like if it was easy, everyone would do it. It's hard. 
I've gone through 20 iterations, you know, to, to get to successful business. I was counting them the other day, 20 different, you could call them all separate businesses, but they're like 20, you know, probably maybe like five or six separate businesses. But the other 14 were like different iterations of trying to make that current business successful, you know, <laughs> right. That's just the way it is. It's hard work. But yeah, I mean, even, even just, just wealth, like I, I have a, uh, an acquaintance whose parents started um, the biggest router company and sold it to Cisco for half a billion dollars. And, uh, and he went off and became, you know, went into finance, but then he wanted to help out. And so he went back and now he runs the family business, family foundation or the family office, they call it. Right. And he's helped them. They've helped them to grow their wealth to over a billion dollars. And so his net worth is like $200 million, which is no small change. Right. And yet he does not feel wealthy at all because he didn't earn it and he won't touch it and he doesn't pay himself anything. And so, you know, my, my friends or peers and I were in this group with him. We're like, dude, you know, have some fun, right? Take credit for helping to preserve and to grow this wealth, but just feel good about what you're doing because you chose to do it. And if that means you got the resource to have some fun with this money, then do it because you only live once. And, and a lot of a lot of people who would love to be in your shoes right now. So stop feeling poverty. Like my, I I felt confused as a child because we lived in the biggest house in the in the town. And this is a tiny town, but like we literally were like imagine those old you know medieval towns where all the the little houses around the castle were there to support the needs of the castle. Well, all the all the you know roads in this town that we lived in went around my house. Wow. And it was a national historic landmark. It's built in 18 or 1797 called Mappa Hall, named after Colonel Adam Mappa, who was from the Dutch um, Holland Land Company who came over to help the revolutionaries on, on the side that won the war. And um, he was given this big land grant. And so he started a co- town called Olden Barnabelle and he built his house. And, you know, he had his, you know, sort of, I don't know why people popped up around him. So anyways, we felt like, wow, we're, we're living in the mansion, but we couldn't get a Big Mac when we went to McDonald's. Like we had to get a regular hamburger. Like <laughs> my dad wouldn't spend the money on a Big Mac. And we're just like, what? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and it's to this day, right? We, I, you know, I go back to the summer house and I'm like, the place is falling apart. It's like, yeah, why don't you invest in this place to, you know, to make it nice? And And, you know, the boats are always broken because he won't buy a new boat you know it's like that's a poverty mindset you know what i mean even though it's got all this well but it's not uncommon you know how do you come up against that because i feel like it can be hard when you evolve away from your family and then when you go home like there's some funny stuff really hard yeah basically everybody grows apart from their family but if you grow up in a dysfunctional family with trauma and you and you get healing like you 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 are on a healing path, then it's very, very re-triggering to go back into those environments, right? There was a, a really um, very, very beloved kind of um, AA slash therapist who talked a lot about those dysfunctional family systems and the metaphor, his name is John Bradshaw, the metaphor he uses is like a mobile, you know, a like mobile that kind of where everything's kind of hanging in balance. And, and when you leave, let's say Mark's hanging over here and then all of a sudden I leave and I blast off and join the Navy SEALs and they're like, tried like heck to get me to come back, to plug me back in the mobile. Because when I leave, the mobile kind of shifts and everything's out of balance. But in their minds, psychologically, they hold that spot open for me. 
and and there there's this deep psychological need to put me back in that spot so that everything goes back the way they thought was the perfect balance. And, and so, you know, years go by and years go by and I never come back, but then I, you know, I get a lot of healing and have a lot of insight and, you know, a lot of forgiveness and a lot of love. So I want to be in their lives. And I go back and then they like put me right back in there where I was at 16 or 15. And it's just like all this energy just starts being triggered in you. And you, it's very hard because those patterns are, what the yogis would call samskaras are, are grooved so deeply and it, you could work on them for 40 or 50 years and they'll still be triggered. So that's, you know, part of the practice is to recognize that you, you can't fix the, like the human condition. You just have to, this, this is the difference between like Western psychotherapy and, and Buddhism is you have to just be okay with things as they are and to allow, and, and to recognize that that's just okay. Like you're, perfect the way you are whereas the western model is kind of like the western model of action that you were talking about do 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 go 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 and i'm going to go fix myself right so i'm going to do tons of therapy and emdr and this and that and the other thing and then you go home thinking i'm fine i got this you know and then bam a bomb goes off and you're like i thought i was a lot more evolved than that and now i feel like i'm you know what i mean i'm, I'm like in order to handle this i gotta like down a bottle of wine just to get to the starting line you know, it's like, <laughs> and I'm sure everyone listening who's been in a, who was raised in those situations going like, yep. So, you know, there's no real good solution. Of course, boundaries, you know, and so we do that. We try that and, you know, limited contact. But the bit, the best is just, just forgiveness for yourself and for them. Just pure forgiveness. That's the only real solution. My mentor is a psychotherapist that he realized at the age of 50, he was still crazy. He's almost Aspergerish. He's very well learned. And he went and lived with a Swami in India originally to study the Swami psychology, but he became a student and it was Vedanta. He always tells me, he says that Western psychology has it wrong because they focus, they try to use the personality to fix the personality, right? In terms of it's, it's completely, you just getting lost in more confusion, more, and more stories, more stories. Yes. You're using stories to, to alter stories. And, and you're going back and reliving negative experiences, which is fires them up. And actually, you know, those, those neurological pathways and emotional energetic centers that were the block energies block, just really just get reinforced. Yeah, I agree with you. The only, you know, it's a much better path to allow the energies to just flow with mindfulness just like recognize the energies when they come up the feelings when they come up and allow them to flow as opposed, as opposed to try to analyze them to death and you know stuff the energy back out of you right because that just makes it worse or distorts it further i think there's a benefit in therapy to um surface things that then we can work on through forgiveness and through you know um eastern practices of meditation and visualization and energy you know release so that i think the two of them have benefit right when worked together uh, skillfully mm, i agree with you mate so i i want to talk about your time in the seals because my view and i may be wrong is that you're physically gifted like you're physically you have a physical acumen which lends yourself well to doing physical shit right I mean, to the extent that they called you cyborg, and I'm sure there's reasons for that, right? But what was your view on when you went through SEALs? You you graduated as honorman. 
what was it about you that enabled you to do so well in that environment? Yes, I was physically fit and adept, skilled, skilled physically. You know, I was a competitive athlete and martial artist and triathlete, and and I could endure a lot of pain. And um, I had the family of origin stuff, where, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of SEAL training. If you look at it on TV, it seems like abuse, and it and it's because it. It's kind of modeling that even though the, the instructors, most of them are, are doing it because they care about you. But, you know, it has some elements of, of abuse and trauma to it because they're trying to, like, really expose weakness and expose triggers and expose, you know, things that in combat or if you're, you know, facing an enemy who's not doing it with care or concern could cause you to, to make bad decisions or to, to, you know, have your life lost or the lives of your teammates. And so this is serious business. At any rate, so I had those two things going for me, but guess what, RJ? So did most of the other students. You know, you have to be a physically fit individual and you have to be athletic in order to even get to stand at the starting line, right? That's a prerequisite. And then I would say, I, have, I would make the statement, although there's no way to really validate it, that there are a fair number of SEALs who had traumatic childhoods because I I know a lot of them and they all, a lot of them did, you know, when you grow up in, in a dysfunction like that, then you gravitate toward order and you can't find any more order than the military. I was no different. I kind of like looked for that order and I looked for that challenge and I wanted, and also you grow up kind of feeling like something's off and you want to like burn it out of your system, especially if you're an athlete, random warrior. And like I figured Navy SEALs and Hell Week, that's going to burn it all out and I'm going to I'm going to grow and, you know, be a different person. And I did from that, but didn't get to the root of everything like we talked about. So those two things I had. And with those two things alone, I, I would say there's probably a 95% chance that I still would have graduated with my class. And we had 185 people start and 19 of us graduated. I would have graduated. But what it was that made me exceptional or maybe a, a really effective leader was the meditation. Because the meditation, you know, in four years of meditation, especially when I was 21, 22, 23, 24 years old, and my brain was still developing, it, it opened up my mind to where I could really use my right and left hemisphere simultaneously. So I had a lot of situational awareness, which is right hemispheric thinking, along with the ability to really focus in and concentrate, which is less hemispheric thinking. Furthermore, that when your mind, when your brain starts to be able to operate at that more whole mind, simultaneous mind level, then you have a, a, almost an opening of access to the heart intelligence and also your gut intelligence, you know, the, the seed of instinctual intuition as well as heart or empathic intuition. And so I was able to really uh, started to open my heart to my teammates and to really demonstrate not as an act of uh, transactional, you know, hey, this is good for me, but because I really cared for them, um, a, a real kind of uh, advanced level of leadership where I was doing it for them, right? I was in service to my small team, which was like six other guys. We called that a boat crew. And so at the end of that training, and I, and I was like very open with them. I was like, we're going to get through this together, right? This isn't about me. And and I'm not in competition with you guys. Uh, we're competing to succeed by getting to the finish line. 
And uh, I taught them some of the skills I had learned on the meditation bench and in karate. You know, I taught them breath control and I taught them, you know, how to focus more and how to, you know, maintain situational awareness while they're getting beat up. And I taught them how to really stay focused just on the task right in front of them. And you know, I would cue them verbally to stay positive and, and um, never really go negative. And if they did, I would, you know, take action to haul them out. Right. So I taught them all these skills that I had just kind of learned through my martial arts training and through Nakamura. And so what ended up happening was I was selected as Iron Man, which meant that I was good at, I wasn't number one at everything, but I was really in the top, you know, 10% at everything or 5%. And yet the, the thing that really matters with the Iron Man is your peer evaluations and the instructor evaluations. And so there was, there was another student who was probably had higher scores than me but those evaluations put me over the edge. Did the instructors see that during the training? Like, did they see your leadership tendencies and how did they respond to that? Like, did they antagonize you more or did they become easier on you? Like, what was their response to that? They, they certainly didn't become easier. They started to just give me more space. You know, the instructors are very intuitive, right? And when they see a strong team and a strong boat crew, what they're really looking for are the qualities of a great teammate that they are probably going to work beside in the future in combat. So they're, they're, they're there to select their next group of teammates. And so when they see a good officer and a good, a good group of uh, operators who are really, who get it and who are great teammates and are, you know, understand the mission and don't complain and are super positive, they will leave them alone. That doesn't mean the training is any easier, but but in a sense, it might be because on the flip side, if they see weakness or if they see ego or they see an officer not taking care of his guys or any, anything, like there could be any number of things, then they descend on that individual and that boat crew, you know, en masse. And they begin to really poke and prod and ride them and, and to try to, you know, ferret out what this weakness is so that, 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 so that they can learn from it. And a lot of times that leads to people quitting and, and not succeeding. And also, you know, you could get kind of beat up. Also, if you don't have the skill to really manage your energy and to maintain um, your physical structure, even if you're a great athlete, it's another thing where you, you could really go into a downward spiral quickly because, you know, let's say you're on a long run and, and you're in the bottom quarter of the class because you haven't managed your energy well. Guess what? They take that bottom quarter and they take them to the surf zone and they do, you know, drills you know, FF drills with them for a while. And then they make you catch up, catch up to the class. right? So, so you do, you get extra work and that could set you further behind if that happens all the time. My, my entire Boku graduated with me. So out of the 19 graduates, seven of us, right. were were a team. So there was something that we were doing a little bit differently, which is pretty cool. I find your psychological response to the process interesting and i love him i love goggins but i looked at his psychological response he effectively rebelled against the instructors and it, it was to your earlier point it represented the trauma I, I think that's why he did well because i think he was deeply traumatized and he knew how to respond to that i think where he couldn't round out was that next level of what you're talking about I know, I know David, he's a great guy. He was trying to prove to himself that he was worthy. And because his trauma is so deep, he, he went overboard to prove it through Navy SEAL training and then through becoming this ultra endurance athlete and 
And so there's a point in time where you just have to accept that you're worthy and not have to prove it anymore. And then also, like to use your term, to round out the hard with a soft because eventually you just run into a wall or off a cliff, right? There's just a time to stop running and to start, you know, nurturing your, the yin, you know, the softer side, right? So I, I, we have this metaphor that I use when I teach seal fit trainees. When the tsunami comes, would you rather be the mighty oak or the willow, or the little reed, you know? And so, you, you know, the point is that we can, we can be the strongest weightlifter, 400 pound deadlift. You can, you can be the freaking boxing champion. You can do all that hard stuff. And, and that's going to be great, right? You might even make it through buds. But when the real shitstorm comes, you might need to have that soft flexibility, pliability, and relaxation skills and be able to let go like the reed. And to be able to just lay down for a while <laughs> and then come back up. The highest form of leadership is, is combining the hard with the soft and training them both until they become integrated into one thing. That's actually represented in the yin-yang symbol, if you remember the Eastern symbol. Well, when you have a white dot in the black area, which is the yang, but the white dot represents the stillness in action, which is the yin. And then in the white side, which represents the yin or the receptivity, the stillness, you have a black dot, which represents action. And so that's this idea that there's action in inaction and there's inaction in action. And ultimately, we want to find that simultaneity of the hard and the soft, the yin and the yang, the situational awareness and the focus in everything. Being able to hold different and varying views and energies and be with it and do what's needed, right? And having that emotional agility, that growth mindset, the ability to be agile, which really is that 1%, that, 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 you know, that everyone can develop. I mean, it's easier for people to develop to your point, particularly within the seal environment where everyone is already physically there, but it's that ability to then go into that gray area fluidity um, of being and state management, which really set you apart. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. When you develop this way, you also are much more comfortable with complexity. If you're just kind of a linear left-minded person, then you do live on this, you know, this polarity scale, good, bad, you know, right, wrong. Whereas when you develop the, the hard and the soft, the yin, yang, and in an integrated whole-minded manner, then you're much more comfortable in the complexity. And you see that every situation has many, many different reasons for coming about if not an infinite number of reasons for coming about. Just this idea of cause and effect is a mirage. When you learn to take and make different perspectives, then you come up with solutions that are from a higher order than you would if you're just using the linear left brain thing. I find that in business as well. Like I'm naturally an impulsive person, but I find I can feel in my body when situations and problems and ambiguity arises. I work with startups. There's ambiguity all the time. I leverage impulse when required action, but I also leverage standing back and observing the playing field. It's not always easy and it takes a lot of discipline to do so. But I think that I've only been able to evolve that through um, mindfulness, reflection, um, being quiet and still. So I definitely agree with you. So 
you ultimately get out of the Navy, it was a decision I think you made to put your marriage first, right? From what I understand, it was you're touring, you're never home. By the way, I, I didn't get out of the Navy entirely. I got off active duty and I stayed in the reserve force. There's a there's a few hundred Navy SEAL reservists. And so I got into that. I actually had some of the most interesting work as a reserve officer, you know, mobilized twice, went to war in Iraq. And so that was pretty cool. But generally speaking, when you're reservist, you're, you're working either on the weekend, one weekend a month, or the way I did it was uh, I did about 40 days every year. Slight distinction. But I, when I got off active duty... In 1997, I was able to, you know, basically do something else full time. And how did this, how did the seal fit idea come about? Like, what was the origination of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So my first business was a brewing company and that was very successful. In fact, today it's just massively successful, but I, and I take a lot of credit for starting it. You know, I raised all the money and got it up and running. We were the fourth microbrewery and we were a restaurant in San Diego. There you go. Um, but I, I didn't choose wisely with my partners. And so I ended up with a real clash with these partners. We'd had completely different values and vision for the business. And these guys ended up being really mean. And they were my brothers-in-law. And they uh, they started to, to really mess with the family because of, you know, they didn't agree with the decisions I was making to try to grow the business and, and bring shareholder value back to the shareholders. They had a whole different plan. <laughs> Yeah, right. There was got to a point where that got so painful, and 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 my wife's parents got divorced over it, and I was the the mom blamed me, the brothers blamed me, and or Sandy, my wife just begged me, she's just just walk away. So I organized a buyout where they bought me out, and so I basically turned the business over to them and went off and and did a few other things, and during that time, um, I started. I had also registered the domain name NavySeals.com for thirty five bucks. What a great registry. What a great result. I know. By the way, if anyone wants to buy that, contact me because I'm, I'm totally open to selling it. I think the Navy should buy it for me. And so I started to train people in the forums and sell gear on NavySeal.com. And, and it wasn't enough to support me. So I was also doing some other entrepreneurial uh, you know, things. I was like interim CEO for the software company and I helped a bunch of other startups. And I was really had this idea that, you know, because of my experience in as starting that business in, the, in NavySeals.com, you know, I could become maybe a, a venture investor and also, um, you know, help entrepreneurs and, and be an entrepreneur. And, and then I got mobilized to go to Iraq. And so I brought in my son-in-law to help, and he was a web developer, to help with NavySeals.com or to keep it going while I was over there. And and before that, I was doing that. Plus, I was at University of San Diego in, in a uh, doctoral program in leadership. And getting paid as a professor, adjunct professor, and to help start a, a leadership institute. So I was doing a lot. But I had to set aside all the academic stuff and the PhD when I got recalled to go to Iraq. So while I was over in Iraq, I had an amazing experience. And I had kind of an epiphany. And I said, you know what? I really want to train leaders and develop leaders and not teach leadership academically. So I decided not to go back to USD and to finish my PhD. And just so happens that my son-in-law, Rich, was also able to, or either just because of the momentum we had or because of his skills, was able to double our revenue at NavySeal.com while I was in Iraq. So it's like, this year goes by and I'm like, my business is doubled. It's now doing almost a million dollars. And and I didn't even lift a finger. I was like, oh, I think there's a real business here. So I went back when I got off um, that active duty, year of active duty, I went started really focusing on that business. Well, simultaneously, the Navy had invited me down to, because I had some skills, 
unique skills in developing complex training. While I was in active duty, I helped develop this complex um, scenario-driven training for SEAL task units that they would take before they went over to the war. And I would ran it, I think, like three or four times, put platoons, even like Jocko's platoon through it before he deployed and whatnot. It was a big team effort, but I was, in, I was the, the officer in charge. So when I got off active duty, the, the SEALs asked me to come and do that, continue doing that. They wanted me to stay on active duty, and I said no. And they wanted me to, if I couldn't do an active duty, then they wanted me to do it as a contractor for someone else, you know, for another company. And I said, no, I will do it if you hire my company. I filed a DBA called US Tactical and which owned NavySeal.com. So it was NavySeal.com, but it was just, so I, I got hired by US Tactical to, to run these uh, programs for the SEALs for a couple of years. And then I parlayed that into launching a nationwide mentoring program for SEAL candidates, which is a government contract led by the US Navy. And uh, I, I did that for one year, but this, this billion dollar company led by another SEAL named Eric Prince, the company's called Blackwater, had wanted that contract. And when I, when I didn't, when they didn't win it, and I was a subcontractor who won it, they went to town to try to get it back or to get it. And they ended up succeeding, you know, with, through very fraudulent means. And so I had this contract, which is like a $10 million, you know, six-year contract, literally just ripped out from under me. And um, I had a lot of my advisors were saying, you got to fight this you know, protest this thing. And I, and I went back to my meditation bench and I said, you know what? After a few days of meditating on, I said, I'm not going to fight. It's like a, a minnow fighting a freaking whale shark, you know, or killer shark. And I said, I didn't really enjoy the government contracting business anyways. Got some great skills, but I do love developing leaders. So why don't I parlay this into developing special ops leaders? And I already have NavySeal.com and I'm already training a lot of spec ops guys through the forums. So everything started to come together in my mind. It's like, oh, well, I'm already doing this. Well, I don't need to be in a government contract and paid by the government. I don't need to have one client. I need to have thousands or hundreds of clients. So I launched SealFit. And SealFit was not a government contracting. I stopped doing that. I said, I'll never do that again. And so I started to, I put together programs. Oh, the other thing about this, is like the Navy really wouldn't let me do anything that I wanted. To, like I wanted to teach them meditation and visualization and, and breath control training, all the things that had worked for me. They said, no, we just want you to corral the guys at the pool and beat them up and, you know, get them to pass the screening test better. Were they doing box breathing, Mark, or did you bring that? I brought that in, into the SEALs. They weren't doing anything like that. Okay, okay, right. And when I started SEAL Fit and started teaching the SEALs, I was I had the freedom because it was a civilian company. I had the freedom to, to develop a training program that I knew would work. And so I, I ran these 30-day live-in academies called the SEAL Fit Academy, which is like a Shaolin monastery for spec ops guys. And during that 30 days, I would teach them everything I could, everything I had learned and everything I was scraping. I became this inveterate learner, just like you, like everything to do with optimal performance, peak performance. And this is still pretty early in those days because it's 2006. But I had, remember now, I had um, like 20 some odd years of training as a martial artist. I had taken up yoga, deep yoga with, with hundreds of hours certification training in 1999. And now this still in six. So I started to draw from those traditions, from the Eastern traditions, martial tradition, yoga. And I started to learn psycho, uh, psychotherapy. My wife is a therapist. I started to learn uh, philosophy and integral theory, and I was just an inveterate reader. And so I, I was able to start to pull together a system of physical, mental, emotional, intuitive, intuitive and spiritual training that, that I uh, built into SealFit. And I called it the five-mountain path, five-mountain training. 
Now, the, the SEAL candidates who trained with me, 90% of them get through SEAL training, which is compared to 80% or more washout rate for everyone else. And so the SEALs started to pay attention. About 10 years later, I'm now about 16 years in, about six or seven years ago, I learned that they were starting to teach my what I now call unbeatable mind principles and recommending my book, Down and Buzz. And that was a huge very gratifying to see. And a lot of SEALs now have trained with things like box breathing and, and uh, mindfulness and visualization and whatnot. Some of it just because the instructors picked it up from us or some, you know, it just started to get out there more. And now they, they use those skills. They never used it or taught them when I was at Buds. Who paid you, Mark? Individuals paid me. Yeah, I've never been paid by the government since I lost that government contract back in 2006. Right. So these were people that were in the Navy that wanted to join the SEALs, that wanted an edge. Some in the Navy, but a lot of them were, were pre-Navy. You know, they were, they were candidates. Or they were in a, another service, like there were Marines who wanted to cross over. Or, But also, it wasn't just Navy. We had Green Berets. We had Rangers. We had Air Force Pararescue. We had... Australian SAS, British SAS, SBS. We had Canadians, we had French, you know, we had Germans. It was it was wild, right? The heyday of seal fit. And we were all over the news. Um, we had elite CrossFitters coming in and doing our training. The, the the most famous training that we had, and I mentioned it earlier, I think, was um, well, maybe it didn't, but uh, at the end of this 30-day event, we would the graduation ceremony was 50 hours and nonstop around the clock training. And that was modeled after hell week. And so over the years, I, I really couldn't hold on to that 30 day event. Cause it was just too much. I didn't have the personal capacity to keep doing that. So, and we weren't charging enough money in the business model. So I started to break that into smaller pieces. And, um, one of the pieces was this, these crucibles, right? And so, we, and we still run those to this day, three times a year where we have a a six, 12, 24 hour and 50 hour crucible in this nonstop, really intense physical, mental, emotional team training. It's just extraordinary training. So we had, we got kind of a, a worldwide reputation for that. And uh, that was cranking up until, you know, COVID. And then that slowed us down quite a bit. So now I'm coming back at it and, and trying to take another look and say, what is seal fit going to look like for the next 10 or 20 years? And how is it going to exist without Mark? Cause you know, I'm, I don't want to run it forever. You know, it should have a young gun in there. Right. So I'm looking at uh, ideas to raise money you know, bring, you know, bring some other team guys in and special operators and grow our coaching base uh, of non special operators with the unbeatable mind model. And we're going through all that right now, trying to figure that out. As, as you know, it's not easy because it's like, I have to treat it again, like another startup because what we didn't before in the past isn't going to get us you know, where we want to go in the future. I'm definitely interested in in learning more about that journey, Mark. It'd be great to get some stuff like that down here in, in Australia. Do you do much in Australia? We've never done any events in Australia, but we've had a ton of Australians come up here to our training. That's part of what I'm trying to figure out. There was a while I was going down the path of certifying coaches, and they really needed to be special operators if they were going to be the the head coach or, or business owner. And, and that, I didn't have that model dialed in. And, that's what I'm working on now. And so I pulled back from that because I didn't want a civilian to be running a seal fit business. I, so then I actually created the Unbeatable brand and, and I have 400 certified coaches, the Unbeatable brand. Because of that, I've taken a lot of the energy away from seal fit. And so I'm, I really want to like 
re-energize SEAL because I think the world really needs physical and mental toughness, right? And so our SEAL fit is really a strong body, strong mind, strong team. And and I see that the world needs this more than ever, even more than in 2006 when I started. Well, I think what we'll do, Mark, is we'll start to land the plane um, mindful of time. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. One of the reasons I, uh, yeah, you know, one of the reasons I really enjoy your work is your range. You, you're academic, you're intellectual, but you're physical and you're also spiritual. And I really enjoy uh, that. And, um, you know, people asked me what it was like talking to you after the first interview that we did, which couldn't go live because of the issues. I, 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 I just didn't realize how complex you are. <laughs> you know, like you're, there's a lot of going on there. I'm working on the simplicity on the other side of that complexity. <laughs> well, I don't mean it in a bad way. What I mean is there's just a lot to unpack. Right. And I I really recommend to our audience to go and get and check out The Unbeatable Mind. One of my favorite um, principles in there is the five plateau of consciousness. Consciousness, the, the, um, the key themes of that, that's just excellent stuff. And um. Yeah, just really want to thank you for your time on the show, Mark. I want to ask you before we go, where could our audience learn more about you, man? Well, a comprehensive kind of catch-all is my my personal website, markdivine.com. So there I have my books and, and also my podcast, which is called The Mark Divine Show. And, and I have a weekly newsletter that head, heads out every Tuesday uh, with my blog and with the show notes and stuff like that. And um so you can subscribe to that at that site and also my social media handles and then sealfit.com, you know, is where we do these, you know, this intense Navy SEAL style physical mental team training. And then unbeatablemind.com is the coaching program using the five mountain five plateau model of integration, integrated vertical development, <laughs> whole person development. Before we go, uh, we always ask our guests if there's any, key habits or there's anything that you'd like to leave our audience with what would your one piece of advice or you know a piece of advice be if you're not training your mind someone else is training it for you and the results will speak for themselves so start to train your mind and body today and 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 make it as important as eating and sleeping it's that important i agree oh yeah thank you rj thank you mark